I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Thanks for joining us. Today's guest reminds me of a very personal story. Uh, when my wonderful son Ali went uh, to apply for universities, he wrote an essay that basically spoke about how he was not fully welcome to blend into his homeland, the Middle East, while he was also not fully welcome to blend into the West. Ali, in his teenage years, had dreadlocks, beautiful dreadlocks, made him very handsome. And as he would walk into Dubai airport or Egypt airport, Cairo airport or whatever, dreadlocks were not common at all in the Middle East. And so the image of them is, you know, what's this person is different. And so he would actually be questioned for the way he looks. And then if he flew to a European airport or a, an American airport, he would be questioned for his name, Ali and his ethnicity, Middle Eastern. And he wrote with full heart really about how it is that we humans create those silos, even though Ali and my wonderful daughter Aya are truly global citizens in so many ways, how they were not allowed to, to become those citizens that they actually are. So today's guest caught my attention because in many ways, this is what she's trying to fix about the world. She's trying to make our world a little more welcoming to all of us. If you, if you think that the world is not owned by whites or colored skinned or males or females or certain genders or certain ethnicities, or, you know, if you really think about it that way, Yasmin Wagheran is attempting to make that our reality, that we all belong. Her foundation is known as We Belong, and she's attempting to do exactly that. Uh, her story started when she was named the Young Person of the Year, the European Young Person of the Year by the Schwarzkopf Foundation in 2019. She was 23 at the time. And she was wearing a headscarf, personal choice that she felt she had the right to live by. And you would think that being chosen as the European young person of the year is amazing. Like it opens up opportunities and it's one of the most remarkable honorary titles you can get. And yet it turned into an absolute nightmare. I'll let her tell you the story, but the reality is it's funny how we humans would get to a point where we would take someone who is so European. Uh, she's Italian born to uh, an Italian mother, a Moroccan father who lived all of her life, all of her young life in a very European style. And yet to be seen as a non-European and be attacked is quite an eye-opening story. What she turned it into if you ask me, is pure magic. So Yasmin, thank you so much for joining me. First, I want to start by asking, what does one do to become European <laughs> Young Person of the Year? How did you achieve that? 
Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here, Mo. It's a great pleasure also to exchange with you. And when it comes to the Young European of the Year, it was a recognition that came after a few years of advocacy work in favor of gender equality and social inclusion uh, in Europe. What does one do? I think it's being committed to something other than the self, giving back to society. And I'll maybe share with you a bit more of how it started for me. So as you well mentioned, I was born in Italy from an Italian mother and a Moroccan father, and even them coming together uh, as a couple, it was seen as, you know, something new for mm. society. So I was, my father was a first generation immigrant in Italy. I'm the second generation. Compared to other countries in Europe, it was um, quite a new element, immigration. And so even within my family, it was welcomed with a lot of reluctance. Mm. So from a very young age, I would know and be aware of the fact that I was different, that my name was different, than when I would go on holidays to Morocco, for example, in summer, my classmates would ask me questions like, but do you have internet there? Do you have electricity? Mm. Like a lot of not knowing, a lot of ignorance about the difference. And then growing up, I would face microaggressions, but just becoming used to that, just because I, I thought it was normal that people would not know. And when I then moved to France with my family, I was 15 years old. I discovered a total different society, even though Italy and France are quite close geographically, but France has an history of immigration also due to colonization much um, longer than Italy. So I was shocked to see for the first time black and brown people working in offices. I've never seen that in Italy. Interesting. Uh, maybe now it's different, but mm. back then, um, for me, it was something new. And then um, in France, I would learn a new culture and see that immigration was much more normalized in visibly in society. But on the same time, I found another type of inequality, which was social inequalities. And so one year after I arrived to France at 16, I started volunteering in underprivileged neighborhoods of France, mostly populated by immigrant descent. So on Saturday morning, I would go and help doing extracurricular activities with children just to make them, keeping them busy and motivated to, to do something out of their life instead of being influenced uh, by other uh, peers of them. And often this could result in schooling failure or uh, getting into the wrong influence. So we start um, like this, volunteering at the local level. And then as I grew up, I, um, maybe at 19, I started also taking part in international events. And this is when I really, for the first time, would be in, for example, European Parliament, um, United Nations, so international institutions bringing those topics. Mm. So from the local level to the international one, bringing a light on when it comes to social inclusion, where are we? There is no representation in Europe or very few people of color or people with immigrant backgrounds represented and at a leadership level. And so because of being quite bold in saying all these, people remember you. And then when it comes to briefing commissioners, 
on those topics I was requested to join. And then I, at the age of 22, I got appointed as an expert for the European Commission and the African Union. And these all these different steps that I took, again, from a local level, understanding that there was a problem. Mm. There was a gap in, you know, representation and also in uh, inclusive leadership. Then this brought me to some spheres I would never think to join, and at a, especially at a such, young, such a young age and coming from where I came from. I'm an immigrant descent, very few young people that get to advise, you know, mm. these type of, of profiles. And so for a long time, I must say I had an imposter syndrome. Why me? Why a person so young is, you know, asked to speak alongside ambassadors, ministers? And then I realized if you're not at the table, you're at the menu. Mm. So, of course, you're young, you have a lot to learn, but you have also another perspective that you can bring because of your generation having more innovative approaches to social uh, issues or understanding because you come from that background or you have seen that uh, that uh, specific problems that you want to tackle. And this comes with, you can be an expert having a PhD, but you can also be an expert having lived the experience mm. on the first, uh, at first hand. So that's what then got me to be recognized Young European of the Year in 2019. And as you well mentioned, it's an award that I literally enjoyed for two days. Mm. And this because the hate that I started to get, which escalated literally as soon as our politicians took the news and used it for their political campaign. Let's come back to this in a second. I know from your story, so what you're saying is basically, if you're passionate enough, crazy enough to put yourself out there because you believe in something, you get recognized for it. People start to say, okay, here, here is a point of view that I didn't know. But I don't think this was, I mean, a lot of us openly believe in something and, you know, yeah, we speak about it maybe to our friends and so on. You're like, you went all the way. I know that you took a, a flight to New York once and tell me a bit about that. Yes. So I must say that even within my educational studies, like my educational experience, when I was in Italy, I was a failure, the last in the class. When I went to France, and especially because me changing my mindset and also maybe uh, my spirituality helped a lot, I started having this responsibility within myself to be more successful and to show also that it is possible. So I got the opportunity to study in what is considered in France an elite university, uh, Sciences Po, which is a political science institute. Ten in France there are. And there is very, like, maybe out of yeah, 3%, 4% of chances to get in. There is an entry test. I got in this university and literally the minute I got there, I realized I need to triple my efforts because I don't have parents who are ministers, ambassadors, or mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. My parents are from the working class. And I knew that I had to do internships, do experiences abroad, in order to build my network and my career. And so this uh, motivated me 
um, to save money and work along with my studies in order to spend a few months in New York, uh, which I did when I was 21, 22. And yeah, it was an experience that, you know, I had to dare a bit and just take a flight a and go. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> take a flight and go. But at the same time, it, it was really the experience that opened the way to public speaking, to speaking in global events. And it was actually the first time I would speak in a former panel on gender equality with uh, a former prime minister of Australia, for example. Mm. And it was... Is that the clip? I saw a clip on online about the prime minister of Australia saying that in the next, I don't know, 40 years, 90 people are going to become prime minister, 90 Australians or something like that. No, that was Italy. I'll, Italy. I, yeah, I'll come back to that then. So how do, you, how do you get to, you speak on panels with prime ministers at age 21. Again, how does one do that? Um, just working on your network. As I was there, I was part of a program uh, called Women Deliver Young Leaders. And I would reach out to them and be like, I'm here if you need me for a panel. And then they literally found an opportunity for me. Same thing with UN Women. I became a part of the Gender Innovation Agora for UN Women Arabic. How is me outreaching to this person who works in Egypt at UN Women Arabic and this person remembering me and then seeing me doing panels in New York? He invited me then to Nairobi for a global conference and I joined his network of these uh, from UN Women. Then applying to opportunities, even being appointed an expert by these two institutions, African Union and European Union, I applied to that and then I got selected. So it's always try. And I got so many rejections. I want to mention this because it's easy to be like, oh, Yasmin is successful. I got a lot more rejections than yes, but for a hundred no, you just need one, yes, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So the idea of if you don't ask, you're guaranteed not to get what you need, right? So Absolutely. basically that's true. You, you mentioned spirituality. So you said spirituality turned you from, did you say the worst kid in class? Yes, in yes. <laughs> okay, T turns you from uh, the worst kid in class to where you are now. What role did spirituality play? So something I realized later on and then, when I was younger, I just couldn't understand is I had some difficulty focusing in class, let's say uh, like this. And so I would be seen by teachers as, you know, the turbulent student that doesn't want to study or that doesn't want to focus. But I have this vivid memory of me being in front of a book and reading the same sentence. I was maybe 10, 8, the same sentence all over again. And my mind was daydreaming. <laughs> And this is something that, except if you work actively to learn how to focus, you can't improve it. But when I started to practice my spirituality, and by the way, I often say growing up, I literally grew up at the church in the mm. sense that I was Italian. in Italy, because mm. in, in Italy, you know, in my little city, there was this church and the church is often the social center for young people to gather, to play games, to do trips. They would organize weekend trips. And so, yeah, I would spend a lot of time. That's also the place where I learned how to sue. Mm. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so for a long time, I, I had this consciousness. I think I always had this consciousness of something bigger exists. 
and uh, I just never really practiced any religion before them or not with intention. And then in France, after maybe one year, I, I moved to France, one or, or two years, I started learning about Islam. And your father is Christian or Muslim? My father is Muslim. Okay, but you only learned when you moved to France. Well, I had basic knowledge before then on how to pray and, and Ramadan, but if you don't really get into learning about it, you don't, uh, yeah. Yeah, you don't know. You yeah. don't practice it yeah. and then you don't live that spirituality. And then I, uh, when I arrived to France, I really, for maybe for a year, I wasn't interested yet, but then I started uh, learning more about this and practicing it in, a, for example, uh, praying five times a day helped me a lot gaining focus. And that issue that I had as a young kid that couldn't focus. Interesting. Yeah, it's like a form of meditation, basically. Yes, yeah. it helped me because I had to be there in the moment and, and connect spiritually. On the same time, also having to, I used to speak French, but not perfectly, but having to learn a new language and read more about, yeah, French uh, literature helped me also gain in focus. And so this lack of attention improved, still a work in progress, of course, but it improved massively. And that's where I also saw a change in my performance at school, but also a sense of responsibility that I gave myself to be a good student and a good person that I think I always had this idea of growing up, I saw a lot of people, they would not feel motivated at school and they would not feel ambitious enough to, to dare. So I want to dare to show to others that it is possible. I think it always came with this idea of it's not just for me, but it's hopefully to inspire some mm. some other people. Mm. And uh, and yeah, that's uh, that's how it went. I mean, I, let me put things in perspective here. So you speak Italian, French, English. Your Moroccan is weak. Okay. I, I, okay I, 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 will, I will attest to that. <laughs> in Spanish. So, so, so you're, you speak three European languages. In you Spanish. Lived, and Spanish, four. There you go. You lived in Italy, France, now in the UK. I don't know if UK is considered Europe still, joke. Uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but basically, you are a true representative of not only a Euro European country, but the, the concept of Europe, right? And yet, your spiritual journey, I mean, it's interesting because through your spiritual journey, you, at a point in time, decide to wear the headscarf, right? At another point now, you you have your beautiful hair done, you're very, very stylish, right? Which I believe is a human choice. You can choose whatever you want to do with yourself, right? I think we've learned that from gender equality recently, only recently, when how humanity, how stupid humanity has been in terms of telling people what they should do with their identity, with their uh, sexuality, with their bodies, and so on and so forth. And luckily, this is going away. But then that moment when you become European Woman of the Year, and I saw your beautiful speech, I actually would probably include part of it here in the conversation. You're giving this beautiful speech, wearing your headscarf, and the only thing that makes you criticized and hated is not all of your achievements, it's not all of the giving, the giving that you have given to the topic of equality and so on, but that you're wearing a headscarf. First, ask if you wouldn't mind sharing, why did you choose to wear the headscarf? Why, why did you choose to remove it? 
That's a good question. And um, I often say it's a personal and intimate journey that I took, decided to wear it. And at, at that point of my life, I felt good by doing it. I was the only one in my family wearing it. I mean, my mother doesn't wear it, never wore it. And she wasn't even that um, approving, that much of like validating the, the choice. She was a bit uh, dubitative, but she always respected. She was like, I don't like it, but it's your choice. And I wish in society this, like, this approach could be taken. In many cases, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, the reaction of people. People would think that I was oppressed, I was forced. Even my teachers at school, I was in my last years of high school, so I was 18, 19, and uh, my teacher saw the change, me wanted to wear the hijab, the headscarf, and so they would ask me, were you forced? And why? And I would always explain it's a free choice. Mm -hmm. It's my body and I feel like I can own my body by wearing it today, maybe taking it off tomorrow. And it's something I would always repeat to the point that even when I took it off, my lawyer, because now we can talk about it later, I, I have a lawsuit related to this uh, headscarf. But my lawyer told me, I expected you to take it off because you always said it, that a woman should be free to wear it or to, yeah. or to take it off and uh, that you could, if you want, take it off one day. So it's always a discourse that I had, but of course the choice of wearing it and the choice of taking it off, I think that what motivated me for the first step, so wearing it, was a personal intimate choice that was my own and related to my spirituality. And the choice of taking it off unfortunately, has been more influenced by the external. Oh, so you feel inside you that to achieve or to belong, mm. sadly, you have to take it off, even if your spirituality may tell you that you should keep it on. So, and this is a very important point because co-founding We Belong, for me, has been a very important message that we send out there, meaning that whoever you want to be, you belong there. Mm. And this is something that having said it and keeping saying it, you also want to live by it. But on the same time, personally, having been the target of hate from all across Europe, from hundreds of people threatening me, life threats, insulting me, just telling me, go back to your country. And I'm like, which country? Italy, Italy is my country. Yeah, I, fine, I like Italy. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, a lot of ignorance. For a long time, I was push, I would push back and be like, we are here to stay. We are here and we do whatever we want with our bodies as women. And then showing that strong side, always, people would tell me, you're so brave. Yes, you know, I felt a duty to speak up. But deep inside, I was traumatized. I was deeply traumatized. And I only realized this a year ago when I decided then to take this step and take it off because I would just be so influenced by what happened to me, even though I would turn it away, not speak about it, and even deny it with myself. Mm -hmm. Deep inside, it left me a lot of insecurities, this experience that I had, to the point that when I would meet new people or even in the job setting, I, I would always feel the pressure to show that 
there's the stigma that they might have or the prejudice that they might have is it doesn't exist or is i'm a normal person like others even when maybe there was no prejudice but just in my mind i would be like maybe they're gonna think this they're gonna think that and so for my mental health i just wanted to be anonymous to not stand up every time or being seen as different every time and it's hard because on the same time i want our differences to be valued and i i am sure and i believe that women should be free to make their choices and to wear what they want on the same time i also had to recognize my weakness we have perhaps people that can bear more than others for me that was the limit and when i realized this i had to to make this choice oh my god that's incredible to hear you say this. I mean, in my heart, I'm now aching, honestly, because from one side, we all want our women to feel safe. Like if I told our listeners that your neighborhood is not safe, hundreds of people are going to attack you and criticize you and make you feel insecure and even send you death threats, you know, who would want that? for a woman that is part of their life. Which woman would want that for herself or for other women and friends, right? So this is one thing. The other thing is we want women to be free, right? We tell everyone now, not just women, we tell everyone, go and explore and explore your sexuality, explore your identity. If you wanna go out without a bra or wear a swimsuit or whatever, that's absolutely welcome. Explore, experiment, feel free. And yet when a woman chooses to experiment by saying my spirituality is telling me I want to wear a headscarf for a while, you're not allowed to. It's sort of like, no, no, hold on, hold on. Freedom stops here. You're free to do what we think is right. But if you do what we don't think is making us comfortable, you know, it becomes an issue. I want to go to exactly how that happened. But I want to ask you, if you don't mind, how was the reaction of the Muslim community when you took it off? Mm. Well, when I decided to, let's say, publish a picture, for example, on social media without the headscarf, it took me a while to actually put it out there because I would be afraid of how people that identify themselves to, you know, the the, the message that they always shared, how are they going to react? But on the same time, I've always been very coherent in the sense uh, that I always mention that women should be free. So freedom comes on both sides. Absolutely. A woman should be free to wear or to not wear, mm-hmm. to, um, you know, to make the choice freely and to have this choice accepted by others as an individual freedom. Mm-hmm. So that's a message that they always put out there. And a lot of people that reached out to me understood and they were like, even young women would share with me the same concern that they had, the doubts that they had. And so it allowed some people to also open up on DMs. And, but then I would see just a lot of people unfollowing unfollowing me. Yeah, of course. Like hundreds and hundreds. And it was sad. It was sad because I felt like, why? Like I'm still the same same person. person and I will still like, defend the cause of women to be free even to wear the hijab or to not wear it like it should be a freedom and that's by the way what i continue to do advocating in france when when there would be discourses discriminating these minorities but on the same time like these people 
that would not accept my choice, they're doing the same game as the people who insulted me because of this choice. Ali's, Ali's story, not belonging here and not belonging there. Exactly. It's, it is so aching, honestly, to the heart. I mean, I don't understand how humans give themselves the right to want their own freedom. So everyone will say, I want to do whatever I want. And then when, yet when others do what they feel like doing, they're judged, they're attacked, they're criticized. It is, it, it just puzzles me, honestly, how that paradox exists. But then for you, and specifically in your case, it went way further than that. So you were not just discriminated against by humans, by normal people like you and I, but by the system itself. Tell us a tiny bit about that. Well, when we talk about the system, more than the system, I would say it's the normalization of hate and discrimination in society. And this because when you face discrimination legally in Europe, you should be protected by law. You should have instruments to allow you to defend yourself, to have a support system and to have your justice when this discrimination goes against the law, which is what I faced. Public injury, incitation to hate, according to, for example, the French law, I should be protected. Now let's go on the practical side. When this happens on social media by hundreds of people, you can't sue hundreds and thousands of people just because, first of all, it's too expensive and some people are even anonymous. You don't even know who is behind the uh, account. So I had to make a choice and seeing at all the messages of hate or people that use my image, one that really amplified this hate was Marine Le Pen. The French presidential candidate. French presidential candidate, leader of the far-right party. At the time, 2019, she was running for the European elections and she literally took my picture, okay, with the hijab and she wrote, look at what the European Union does, they promote radical Islam. So according to her, the fact that they wear the hijab is related to a radical practice of Islam. And this... Just because of your look, not because... You, exactly. you didn't take any action that would warrant that, did you? No. Mm. In the sense that for years, even when I started my advocacy work was really focused on peace and security on countering violent extremism, on those topics of inclusion. So all I did was for peace. And for you to just like stigmatize me and use my image to promote a message, this first of all, wrong, false. And so I, I, at the time I had a lot of media covering this story, mostly defending me. I mean, like she attacks a young student of 23 years old. Sorry to say, what, what radicals? I mean, you were also speaking for gender equality, for LGBTQ communities, for transgenders. You were basically saying anyone should be free to do everything that they want. That's, that's not radical in any way, is it? Absolutely. And I think I was a scapegoat. She took this, uh, she did like this uh, raccourci, we say in French, so this shortcut of hijab, extreme. And uh, it's sad because a lot of people would just uh, believe what she say and she nourishes her discourse on this fear of 
deodorant, especially minorities. And she didn't expect at all that they would react mm. or that they would uh, take legal steps. So at the time, you know, it's very interesting because the day she was attacking me on social media and I would receive a lot of calls from journalists to invite me on TV. First of all, I decided to not go on TV. But what I will never forget is that the same, that same day, I was actually at a funeral of a young boy, a family friend, 17 years old, who died because he was fleeing the police. He was just in his neighborhood playing, and then he was fleeing the police with a scooter, and the, the police touched him from behind, and he fell and he died. And I was holding the hand of his mother in this funeral while I was receiving all these calls and having so many messages coming on my social media. And at that time, I just knew, and I kept reminding myself, I know why I do what I do. This is why I do what I do. To not see young people falling into the wrong influences or dying because of these inequalities that they face or injustice that they might face in the context where they grow up. I want this to change. And so I know deep inside that my core motivation is promoting peace, promoting these bridges that lead to inclusion rather than exclusion. Seeing my city on those days with a lot of riots happening, people, young people feeling like they wanted to create chaos just to be listened because they lost their friend. I just felt like this could have been my brother. And by the way, this young boy was a very good friend of my brother. He could have been my brother. And so knowing this, I just realized that I need to make sure that the message of peace that I want to promote gets across as many people as possible. So instead of reacting to this hate I faced going on TV or speaking on media, I decided to stay silent, hire a lawyer, and sue Marine Le Pen on the basis of public injury and also because she basically, her action uh, led other people to, to just uh, insult me and, and hate on me. Do you believe that this is, I mean, in an interesting way, if you, if you look at the Trump campaign, some of the atrocities that Trump would say are mainly related to the fact that they meet public opinion. Like when Trump would say something like, we're gonna build a wall to prevent Mexicans from coming in. He's not saying this because it's his idea. He's saying this maybe because it's the society's idea of we don't want other ethnicities or other nationalities in the country. And, and by the way, from a, a business point of view, maybe from a legal point of view, absolutely there is a point of we don't want illegal immigrants, but the idea of provoking hate seems to have reflected on the sort of, you know, a certain segment of the American society. Do you believe that this was also what Marie Le Pen was doing? Was she basically saying, look, here is a good scapegoat because I know that the undercurrent of the society is they want to hate radical Islam. Look at her. Yeah, nice picture. Let's use this. Mm, definitely. And, you know, there is a lot of similarities in the campaign of Trump and the one of many far-right leaders in Europe also can mention the far right in Italy, similar. In America, we say America first. In Italy, the slogan was Italy first. And it's really similar narratives and approaches that would just take a group of people in society and use them to then uh, promote a certain type of discourse. And people would buy on it, but would follow this, uh, this trend. 
I believe that, yes, my picture has been used for the promotion of a message that just uh, alienates minorities. And it's, it's funny because I actually, well, as I often say, I shouldn't prove that I am European in order to feel European. I shouldn't prove that I was born in Italy, my mother is Italian white and, and I have roots. No, you can be Italian or European by feeling European. European is a sentiment. A young European of the year, what is it? European is, Europe is a project that after decades of war, people would come and live together and build a project of peace with 20, now 27, with Brexit, 27 states with different cultures, different languages, different habits, but similarities. And the idea of unity in diversity, which is the motto of the European Union, is we are better off together than apart. And so in this sense, I feel deeply European because it's a message of peace. And when you think about that in that way, it's a unique project that should be valued. And, uh, and so that's, uh, that's why I say you can feel European, you can. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned the fact that I lived in different European countries. I also lived in Barcelona and Amsterdam for a few months. I feel a citizen of Europe and of the world. I, would ju I was Global just going citizen. to say, I was just going to say, I mean, mm. interestingly, everything you say also applies to being human, right? Being human is the same everywhere. I think the, the planted hate is probably not our nature. It's basically aligning to an ideology, whether it's a radical religious view or an extreme political view or even a football team. I mean, I, I remember growing up in Egypt, I was a fan of one club. I'm not gonna say what it is so that Egyptian listeners don't you know, discriminate against me. But then, you know, if you're a fan of that club, the other fans of the other club would go like, what's wrong with you? Like, you know, why are you not, you, you should be one of us. Mm. And that fanatism I think is, embedded within us and honestly as you as you tell the story 23 years of age at the time being attacked by the presidential candidate chased by the press and the media subjected to hate and attacks i want our listeners to honestly just imagine having gone through that for nothing more than actually doing work that brings peace it's really interesting just doing it with covering your hair. I mean, what's wrong? It's a choice, right? If I cover my hair, what would people think less of what I do? It's really interesting. You seem to like a, a squash ball. You you just seem to keep coming back. So now, so you, you have your own personal career, like you're, you're in tech in here in, in the UK and doing well and all of that's amazing, but you still decided to start and co-found uh, We Belong. What is We Belong? Yes. So first of all, I also want to mention before speaking about We Belong, I also got a lot of support, oh, especially from people that I didn't expect, high profile people or having been given other awards from the European Commission, really following a few months following this first award. So it is important to mention that there was also a lot of support. And this I think gave that's me, a beautiful angle to it. Yeah. Yes. And this gave me a lot of strength. Mm. I, I didn't feel alone. Of course, it was a lot to go through, but I didn't feel uh, completely alone in that in that experience. And then after that, I really had a sense of duty to turn this painful experience into a positive one for others. 
my first ambition was what I faced. I would, I hope, and I wish other people will not have to go through what I went through. And so I wanted to build a support system so that young women, especially because of my experience, young women that would face this wouldn't feel alone. And then secondly, that despite what happened to me, I don't want people to, to be demotivated to take new steps or to achieve new milestones just because they saw that it has been difficult for others. I want them to understand the importance of the challenges that you might face, but also know that you can try and do it if you wish. So We Belong was co-founded two years ago by Jana de Grot, which is one of the youngest elected politicians in Europe. And she is a uh, Luxembourgish woman with also a Togolese uh, background. And Sumeya Saibu, who is a content creator from Italy and social media strategist. She has also Moroccan roots. And by me. So three young women, we would come together, live in different countries and reflect on, let's build a platform that first would share positive stories and inspiring stories to set new role models for the next generation that look like them. And this is very important in the sense that the type of profiles that we showcase in our platform and on the podcast are women with immigrant backgrounds living in Europe that we call the new daughters of Europe. And the idea behind it is no matter if you live in Bulgaria or in Germany or in Norway or in Denmark, There is common realities that these women face. And this has been uncovered by the challenges of being different, of fitting in a society, a topic that often comes, which is also something you mentioned about your beloved son, Ali, is crisis, identity crisis. How do you accept the fact that you are from two different cultures mm. and other? How do they embrace the fact that you can bring an added value, finding an harmony between your different identities. And so these type of topics are those that we cover and the profiles that we share in our platform and podcasts are range from entrepreneurs to one of the most successful footballers, Nadia Nadim, who was an Afghan refugee turned into, into a footballer. We have singers, artists. The idea is whoever you want to be, And wherever you want to go, you belong there. It's so beautiful. And it is absolutely the truth, I think. Do you think there was something common across all of them that allowed them to succeed? So if someone listening to us now is, is facing this kind, I'm sure everyone is, is facing this kind of exclusion, what do you think is the biggest ingredient for success? A lot of time, because it's a question we often ask is, finding a strength within your diversity. And that's something we try to promote. Understanding that the diversity can be a strength rather than a challenge. It can also be a challenge because you're going to maybe face discrimination. But how do you turn it into a strength? And this is why it's a mindset change. And of course, in different contexts, you might still feel that diversity can be a burden because people make you feel like that. But how do you embrace that side of you. I would often listen, uh, hear this from my podcast guests. And then uh, I think what helped some of these women 
succeeding in what they do or finding their path with their ambition. Also, for some of them, having role models. And this is why the approach that we have at We Belong is setting new role models. Yeah, I love that. Growing up, I didn't see something looking like me doing what I then did. And same for Jana. Jana, which is one of my co-founders, she was one of the youngest selected politicians, I say, as I said, but she's probably one of the few black women in the political spheres in Luxembourg. And it is difficult. It is difficult. She faces a lot of hate, misogyny. And uh, even speaking with her, she, she often tells me, Yasmin, we belong, had such an impact on me where I finally could find a safe space to share my concerns and not feel alone and feel that my experiences of discrimination within these fears were validated by someone because for a long time she would just be silent about what would happen in the fear that she would not be believed or understood and, and felt very lonely in that journey but now through we belong it's something that helped her a lot and for me just knowing that at least my co-founder feels this and even the community now we have a dozen of people working with us, but also the community listening to us, we receive a lot of messages, knowing that this has an impact for others, even though it's not millions of people, but just at our level, since two years, it is incredible. And plus, we realize that we're listened by the right people in the sense that earlier this year, Yana was recognized Obama leader. So just a few weeks ago, she had the chance to pitch we belong to Barack Obama. Did she? She did. <laughs> Come on, that's not, uh, can I go? <laughs> yes, it would be amazing, it would be amazing. But Obama has this foundation where he supports the next generation uh, in their project. And we belong, was selected by the Obama Foundation through Yana uh, to be supporting. And then we had also opportunities coming our way because of this recognition that she had. So I'm very well grateful done. for this. Well done. Because I know that Yana and also I, but as his co-founders, we are all about the cause. If she speaks to him again, tell him I like him. Okay, just, just pass that message. But that's absolutely the right level of recognition. I mean, to make it very clear, I, I personally, of course, suffered the same, believe it or not, whether I made it to all the way to the top of the of the career ladder of anyone, really. I mean, chief business officer of Google X is quite big. And believe it or not, I remember vividly many times in my career where I would be the only non-white, non-American in the executive team of my companies. And uh, you can, of course, imagine that, you know, for the last 20 years or so, the topic of inclusion has become more and more discussed in those executive committees. And everyone would be talking so avidly about it and what we're going to put on the PowerPoints and, you know, how are we going to announce it to the team and so on. And it, every now and then I would actually sort of say, but if you don't mind me saying, if you have not noticed, I'm the only non-white non-American in the executive committee. And you wouldn't believe it, what the answer would be. The answer would be, oh, you're not American? Okay, so as a matter of fact, people actually could not even recognize. That was normally because I actually followed a very interesting, since 9-11, I remember vividly, because I had a trip to, to the US six days after 9-11, and I needed to actually connect through New York, through JFK. And I, I was about to cancel it. And I spoke to my uncle at the time, who was a very prominent businessman, very successful, wonderful guy. And he said, no, as soon as flights are allowed, you should go. 
and you should actually go with the intention of showing that you're not that bad image, that, that we're good people, okay? And believe it or not, that advice was my approach throughout my entire career, which was to focus not on my differences to others, but to focus on my commonalities. So that executive committee of 12 people, for example, you know, I would get closer to the marketing lady because she's a mother and I am a father. And I talk about the commonality of parenting. I, I would get closer to the head of engineering, for example, because I'm a very serious techie. I would be closer to the, you know, head of, uh, I don't know, sales or business or whatever, because I'm a good businessman. And, and I would, try to amplify my commonalities with everyone rather than my differences. And this is why people would never actually feel that I was that brown Egyptian coming from a different ethnicity or a different background. And I think that really is one of the, of the game. Like you rightly said, focus on your strengths. If you feel that you're excluded, don't keep focusing on the reason for your exclusion and hammer it in and say, I have the right to be a woman. You know, I need to fight as a woman. Rather say, I'm a human with a lot more commonalities to everyone around me. Yeah, maybe to some part of humanity, I'm a woman and you're a different gender, but that that's a minor difference when there are so many commonalities that we need to focus on. And I, I have to say, this really made a big difference for me in my career. Can I ask you, um, I don't know how to say this differently. I mean, you come across as a very, you're glowing, you're happy, you're, you're comfortable with yourself, even though you've been subjected to all of this hate and aggression, if you want. What's your secret? What's your secret to happiness? I think listening to people like you <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> helps a lot. But <laughs> you know what? I find it very interesting, the approach that you just explained about embracing and finding more similarities. There is more than makes us humans or that, you know, approach, like makes us closer than those elements that differentiate us. And um, when it comes to finding a sense of security within myself, I'm just as human as others. I have a lot of insecurities, right? But something that helped me a lot was accepting the fact that what I faced was something external to me and I didn't ask for it. I didn't ask for that visibility. I didn't ask for that hate. I didn't expect it, but it happened to me. And now there is a difference between what happens to you and what you do out of it. And even recently, as I was during the last month, uh, there was the elections, right, in France, the presidential elections, I was asked to go back on media. And since three years, I'm advancing in my life. As you said, I work in tech. We belong is in, like, you know, growing and going forward. And it was a way for me to, well, it's a healing process. We belong mm -hmm. has been a healing process to be like, I don't want this to be just a negative element that happened in my life. I want to turn this into something useful for others, right? And so when you think about this, when I was asked to speak in, this, uh, in some of these media, I thought about it and I was like, no, my story has to move forward from what happened to me. So letting go, sometimes there is power in letting go. And if you ask me, I'm still learning a lot about myself, but one thing that I want to make sure is that if Yasmin will not be anymore, we will all leave this world, right? One day or the other. I don't want people to take away 
that was a victim of hate. I want people to remember that despite what happened, I tried to do something for others not facing this or for others to overcome this if it happens to them. Because, you know, I would often be told some people would have been broken or, you know, burned out by what happened to you if it happened to others. Like having every two seconds messages and on all platforms for more than two weeks, every second, all day long, it was overwhelming. And I can't tell you what helped me going forward, but I think support, understanding deep inside why I do what I do. And up till today, I know that my purpose is very clear and it's turned towards others. I would always say this award is not my award. It represents so much more, like the fact that you can be different and belong to Europe. And so like even on my award speech, I would say this award is for all of us, for every minority, no matter where you come from, you're also European. And this is the message that really I would like to share across. So knowing deep inside why, why you do what you do, then you find the strength to say whatever you have to say without hesitation. And inside you might still feel insecure, but that's okay. It's your human side. I think everyone listening to us would agree that this must be one of the most inspirational young women I have spoken to on a slow-mo if you just remember this very last statement of, yeah, you don't want to be remembered as the victim, that life will send things your way that are difficult, but are also perhaps part of your purpose, part of what makes you who you end up to be. And it is a question of how you turn them into what makes you a good contributor to society. Yasmin, I just cannot tell you how impressive you are. And I definitely think that you touched my heart so many times uh, during this conversation. I think everyone listening to us, it really doesn't matter what your the color of your skin or your gender or your background or where you come from. I assure you there is something different about you. I assure you that you personally feel discriminated against as well. And I would invite you to just Take that moment when you were bullied in school for being a little smaller than the others or made fun of because of your accent. It doesn't matter who you are and just take the pain that you felt during that minute and stop causing that pain to others. Stop making others feel the same way. This truly, truly is one of the biggest faults of our society today. I sit today honestly feeling small in your presence, Yasmin. You're so incredible in so many ways. Thank you for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing so openly. And thank you for inspiring so many. Thank you. Thank you, Mohammed, by, by these words. And uh, if I can leave people just with one last sentence is really whoever you want to be, wherever you want to be, you belong. And that's something I wish everybody could remember every day. You belong. I think that's what we're going to end with. If you've enjoyed this, I think you need to spread it to others. I think you would agree. This is definitely something that would make our world better. Rate this podcast five stars, like it on YouTube. I don't know, do something, honestly, because when you're listening, I get the chance to 
invite more incredible people like Yasmin for you to be inspired. And yeah, remember, despite your busy schedule every day, there are topics that actually are worth you slowing down and reflecting. There's always a tiny bit of time for you to slow down. I love you all for listening and I will see you next time.